Global Capital Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Global Capital Podcast. I'm Ralph Sinclair and I'm the Frequent Issuer's Managing Editor. And I'm John Hay, Corporate Finance and Sustainability Editor. Uh, coming up later in this week's edition, we're speaking to our CLO reporter, Victoria Teeler, about possible sightings of a whale in the CLO market. Uh, so more of that later. We'll also be discussing aircraft ABS in the US. That's not a market that's exactly awash with new deals, but there's been a huge rally in the paper that's out there, which our US ABS reporter, Aisha Kelger, believes has some in the market contemplating a revival of new issuance. Uh, but first, John, this is our 101st episode, and we have a whole new asset class to talk about, which uh, relates to something we discussed last week. So let's embark upon multilateral development bank hybrid capital 101. Um, <laughs> now, the African Development Bank is at a fairly advanced stage with bringing its first ever deal, and in fact, the first deal of this type at all. Uh, first of all, uh, for the uninitiated, what is hybrid capital? Right. So hybrid capital is a sort of bond that is uh, has some features of equity. Now, it's not to be confused with convertible bonds, which we've also talked about on the podcast, which are bonds that convert into shares based on the, what the share price does. These bonds are supposed to stay bonds, but they um, have equity like features which means that the rating agencies will treat them as partly equity when they're doing their calculations about how leveraged the company is. So particularly the rating agencies want them to be very long maturity. So they have to be at least 30 years and it's usually 60 or perpetual bonds. Um, they have to um, be subordinated to the senior debt, meaning they take losses first in a, in a wind down scenario. And the, the borrower has to be able to not pay the interest if it gets into financial difficulty. And so in a typical corporate hybrid transaction, the um, the, the borrower will have the option not, not to pay the interest. It will issue a 60-year bond, which is callable in, say, five years. There's a bit of an incentive to call the bond because the, um, the rating agency equity credit will get taken away after a while. Um, so, so this bond is treated as 50% um, equity by the rating agencies, and it is um, therefore priced at, at about 200 basis points wider spread um, than the senior debt. And that 200 obviously depends on market conditions and, uh, and the name of the issuer. But this is the sort of thing that has never been issued by um, multilateral development banks. Um, now, over in the bank commercial bank world, there's a huge amount of hybrid debt issuance of all stripes, um, which is dictated by the regulators. And th those instruments are, you know, very well understood and widely traded. But the the, the MDBs, although their banks have, have never issued them. Well, I, 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 I might respectfully suggest that in the case of Credit Suisse, uh, very few people seem to have understood the uh, the, the risk of the 81, or at least pretended to yeah. publicly. So um, I guess we'll see. But anyway, uh, that's by the by. Why is the AFDB doing one of these deals? Um, well, this is all part of the agenda under which the multilateral development banks are being urged to do more, basically. They're increasingly seen as... Um, very important to the very severe um, development problems the world faces, um, you know, above all climate change, which is basically making life worse in most developing countries. Um, 
and fighting against all human efforts to improve things like education, uh, you know, reduce poverty, end hunger, and so on, which are the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And you know, we're we're realizing that we're kind of losing grip on these targets, and everybody wants uh, to do better, but you know who should be doing better the multilateral development banks so there's increasing pressure on them to to do more and that means expanding their balance sheets now um the problem is they have limited capital the um rich countries that essentially have provided a lot of the capital and you know and uh, emerging market countries too but these countries do not really want to shell out um a, a lot more capital to them they're pretty stingy about it um, and so it's always been difficult for them to kind of expand their capital. And um, what people are now saying is, well, you've got to just do more with the capital you have. And that means basically having a more aggressive balance sheet. Now, hybrid capital is perfectly designed for that. That's its entire purpose is to enable you to basically add some more debt, but that the rating agencies will think of as adding to your equity, which allows you to issue yet more debt. But I guess critically, without imperiling the AAA rating. Yeah, so that so the whole point is, and that's why the rating agencies are so crucial. Um, corporates, when they issue these, are wanting to basically support their senior credit ratings, either perhaps even lift them up a notch, or but basically defend them against downgrade. Um, and with the with the MDBs, they are AAA already, the big ones, and but the point would be to allow them to basically make more loans and expand their balance sheets have more gearing on the balance sheet while still being AAA. Okay. And um, what are the equity-like characteristics in this particular deal? Do we know much about the structure? And and I guess the follow-up question to that is, how much of a template will this deal be for others in this class? Because every supranational yeah. is uh, set up slightly differently, isn't it? Yes, it's true that they are different from each other, and those differences can cause problems, especially when at the mo as at the moment there there's an effort to sort of reform the sector. But it, the main thing is that is the similarities. I mean, essentially, they are built on the same model. The the World Bank came first, and the others were kind of copies of it. So, um, so there there are important similarities. I think I think there have been hybrid capital issues by multilateral development banks before, but they've been either small or private or, um, you know, uh, didn't succeed. Um, there were two, for example, last year by two smaller African development banks, um, which actually didn't come to the market in the end, but they did get almost there. Um, and, and there are various other sort of more marginal MDBs that have uh, subordinated debt of one kind or another. But the, your point is absolutely right. This will be the template. You know, the African Development Bank is one of the top tier. It's a big, internationally known, AAA rated, big issuer of bonds. And, um, you know, th this is the deal that everyone will be watching. How big is this deal going to be? Well, uh, at the moment it's planned at $250 million to a billion dollars. Now, what's a bit unclear at the moment is that the I mean, the African Development Bank is has got three potential sets of investors. One is its own shareholders, i.e. the national governments, and they're very important. A second is what they call development partners, which I think basically means, you know, other organizations that want to support development. But will, these will basically be probably public sector or philanthropic. And the third category is the public market. Now, 
the 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 bank is planning a public market deal and it's beginning to talk to investors about it it's got um a couple of banks advising it bnp paribas and goldman sachs and they've been talking to investors and they're going to do a lot more investor outreach in in september but we don't know yet whether the first issue will be placed with shareholders or or into the public market and and the key issue really i think will be pricing and demand We'll come to that in a second. I'm a bit curious, though. Uh, the the AFDB's top ten shareholders are Nigeria, the USA, Egypt, Japan, South Africa, sorry, South Africa, Algeria, Germany, Canada, France, and Cote d'Ivoire. I mean, are we really saying that between them they can't have a whip round for 250 million bucks? It it no, seems I'm like not... this is a great payday for um for um you know the the banks and the lawyers and the rating agencies involved in like coming up with this sort of structural wheeze but um surely it's not a very efficient <laughs> way of you know generating more capital especially if the shareholders are going to be the buyers of the hybrid yeah that's a really interesting point i mean um i don't know why the national governments are so mean and difficult about giving more capital to the mdbs they do do it of course and every uh, few years the african development bank like the others has a general capital increase as it's called and they they talk to the shareholders and there's a big it, the negotiation takes a year or more and but they do get it you know that the the shareholders do put in more capital but it's a long process it's is bureaucratic you've got to get every shareholder to agree otherwise um you know basically you're altering the balance of power with you know the relative shareholdings within the within the development bank will change sometimes that has to happen but you know on the whole if if you're algeria say and you've got a certain stake in in it you don't want to be have your stake diminished by the usa just increasing its stake or something like that mm. so um you know it's got, it's all very political basically what hybrid capital offers is a much more flexible um solution because owning the hybrid capital notes will not give any ownership rights over the over the bank or any votes in its purely capital it's purely financial and so it can be organized more quickly with just a just a subset of the shareholders and um you know so i think that's the big advantage you know it's, you can be have a sort of coalition of the willing it can be just one at a time or or you know four or five so it's complicated, but not as complicated as getting countries to agree on a... Yes, on a... exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That's a much yeah. better way of putting it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about pricing then. Um, how do you price a bond like this? I mean, like the obvious uh, way, I guess, to look at it from my point of view uh, would be simply to look at the spread between um, hybrid hybrid debt for corporates and financials and their their sort of you know senior debt and sort of reduce that a bit for the fact that it's a supranational and um, bang that on top of the um, supranational sort of senior bond spreads. Is that is that a bit oversimplistic or is that kind of roughly what people are thinking about? No, I think you're right. That is the starting point. But the big question is how much, um, you know, first of all, what what is the starting point? And there are two possible or even more than two actual possible starting points. But then how how big a reduction can you get? Um, for the fact that it's a multilateral development bank and its senior rating is AAA, which none of the other hybrid issuers have. And also it's a special organisation which is backed by national governments, which are sort of supposed to support it if it ever gets into trouble and indeed legally bound to. So just the starting points, the corporate hybrid market, as I said, it trades typically about 200 basis points back of senior ratings. We can just take that as a rough um, 
rule of thumb it, it, it changes depending on conditions but those corporate hybrids are they're rated uh, two notches below the senior rating and that reflects the fact that they're less equity like than what the african development plank bank is planning which will get a hundred percent equity credit so it is a more subordinated more equity like instrument which is um theoretically at least exposed to more more risk now um that indicates that it is structurally and in a sort of purely analytical way it's more akin to additional tier one capital which is issued by banks uh, which is also designed to be um written down if they if they get into problems it, it has um deferral of interest which is not repaid later so basically if you if you skip any of the coupons you you don't have to pay them back later which is the same for mdbs and bank capital and um, there are circumstances in which it can there can be mandatory interest suspension and mandatory write down so you know these bank 81s which which structurally seem more similar to the uh, mdb one are um trade about 400 back at the moment of senior so there's a big difference there and whether your starting point is 200 or 400 is is a huge difference now um then the question is how much can you fight investors in from from the high price and that will partly depend on who the investors are if we, if we're basically talking to investors that buy uh, supranational bonds and have bought the african development bank's bonds for years and you know just see this as an opportunity to help them out by buying this new exciting instrument that will pay them a higher spread you know you might get an attractive pickup for the african development bank i.e not that big but if you're talking to hard-nosed um, hybrid capital investors who, um, you know, do this for money, uh, they might drive a harder bargain. So that is this is all what's going to be uh, decided. Right, right. Um, I mean, how big and how public can this market be, do you think? Because actually another another feature of both corporate hybrids and um, I guess Bank 81s, it tends to be they tend to be callable deals. Will this be callable too? And therefore, there'll be a chance to refinance it. Yeah, they'll be callable and, um, you know, they'll have a five or 10 year uh, call. You know, there'll be five or 10 years during which they're not called and then they can be called. Um, th this is similar to bank additional tier one capital. And of course, you know, this year we've faced a lot of issues, as we've discussed, about interest rates having gone up and this, this making it, you know, um, and, and above all spreads having gone up and that makes it quite difficult for the um, issuers to decide whether to call the bonds or leave them outstanding and just let them let their interest rates reset. So the, those sorts of issues are ones that if MDB hybrid capital gets going will no doubt occur in, in that market too further down the line, but that's a way off. Okay, well, that's, that's, um, well, that's all sounds, sounds great. I mean, how, how close is this deal to happening? Well, I think they hope that, I mean, the, the, the development bank are going to be doing intensive investor meetings in September. And I think it will depend how it goes, you know, if it will depend on the appetite uh, and on the market conditions. But if, if the market is good and if investors are eager, I think they'll, they'll do it in September or October. That's, that's the sort of best case, I, I'd say. And then, of course, the World Bank is also working on one. Um, they've got a plan to do a $1 billion pilot deal in the capital markets, public capital markets, 
um, which at the moment is penciled in for the first half of next year. We don't know what the structure is going to be yet, but uh, reading between the lines, it looks like another 100% equity credit deal. So it, probably quite similar to African Development Bank. And, um, you know, that, of course, will be a major event. Um, you know, it, the World Bank are clearly worried about the about how much it might cost. Um, but, you know, uh, it's an experiment. Well, I'd call that a pipeline, John. That sounds very exciting indeed. Yeah, it is, isn't it? And and we also understand that there's at least a couple more um, of the major MDBs uh, working on it too. All right. Well, we'll look forward to the coverage of those in the uh, weeks and months to come. Um, now, another another market where there's a, a pipeline of deals emerging, perhaps, is uh, in aircraft ABS in the US. Um, yeah, it's been a market there for years. However, uh, the aviation industry, as we all know, um, took an absolute beating during the pandemic um, and has also suffered the sort of ill effects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I, I'm sure uh, anyone who's uh, flown or thought about flying in the last couple of years has um, had some sort of interaction with cancelled, changed flights, delays, and mm. you know other ones. But mm. it is, but it is, uh, it is a sort of sector that's coming back and probably where demand is uh, fast outstripping supply. Um, now, Aisha has written uh, this week about just how much um, yields have fallen in the aircraft ABS market. Um, the the A tranches, so called A tranches on deals, which I guess are the best rated tranches, the uh, they were trading at a yield of around ten to twelve percent um, just as recently as November. They now uh, are yielding just six percent to seven percent, and that's got a lot of people excited about the prospect for um, further issuance, isn't it, John? Yeah, um, it's quite a remarkable rally, and that can really only be happening because investors are buying in. Um, and, and you know, this is a sort of specialist asset class in the US, um, even within securitization. But but the investors that buy it are are enthusiasts, like as in many specialist asset classes. And they um, basically see enormous value in, in some of these high yields and spreads. So they've been, you know, selectively buying again. I think it probably means that they basically think the worst is over for aviation you know they it's th th these these people especially they do they do nothing else but study aircraft abs uh, as their job you know permanently and and mm. they've be sort of waited stayed out of the market while it got worse and then they must have decided that the the um worst has been reached so they they're coming back in now um you know spreads for example were were about 250 basis points for senior tranches and that's uh, that's now and they've come down from 400 to 500 at the end of last year so all of this means that uh, deals are now potentially more attractive to to issuers. Now these are deals that are secured on aircraft leases in particular, which is obviously an, uh, the most popular way, I suppose, of owning an aircraft if you're an airline. Um, why were they hit in particular, John? Well, I think that the thing about the aircraft industry is it's um, it's very sensitive to 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 the level of demand because you've got there's a finite stock of aeroplanes. And if the, if demand is growing fast, so that those those aircraft are in demand, the, the lease rates for them can be can become quite attractive quite quickly. But if if there's a downturn, as repeatedly happens when travel falls, for example, after nine eleven or you know the global financial crisis, COVID, and so on, there's a sudden dip in in air travel, and th then the airlines just they just nobody wants that marginal extra plane, right? And some of the airlines. You know, one or two might go bust. Some of them 
uh, reduce their fleets or, or flights. You know, you've got suddenly excess capacity and that just kills um, demand and the, and the lease rates fall. And this is what um, makes it uh, sort of uh, difficult then to to finance a deal. Um, and if at the same time you've got the spreads widening in, in the capital market, you know, they, they, there can be just no arbitrage or no way of making money by financing leases in with a securitization. And, and you know, even some of the people I just spoke to said, uh, basically, the, the two are at parity now, roughly. The, the, the money you make on, on leases on, on some aeroplanes is, is what you'd have to pay to finance them with a securitization, which basically means you'd, you'd have to do the deal at a slight loss or, you know, or, or break even. But of course, now the underlying conditions in the airline industry are probably the opposite. Um, and that you would imagine would drive leasing rates up, if anything. Uh, if you think about it, all those airlines that, um, you know, didn't want to take on planes and were trying to sort of off them and off staff during the pandemic, mm. uh, they've all they've not been shy to sell flights as, as many mm. as they can. Uh, since the restrictions on travel were lifted. But meanwhile, the knock-on effect of that on the manufacturers and the engine producers, they also shut down production capacity. Mm. And of course, the lead time in turning this stuff back on, getting planes built and hiring specialist yeah. staff with knowledge is is very long indeed. So you would think there should be a shortage of planes for, for quite some time. Therefore, you can lease them at higher rates and that will surely surely help this market because it will make the economics a lot better. So, Ralph, is, is Aisha saying that uh, securitization issuance could come back in the sector then? A tentative yes, I think, is the is the is the right answer to that. I mean, as you mentioned, John, the people that are really into this market um, are the, the proper aviation geeks. And they look at these deals sort of almost like lease by lease and really understand the pool of assets that they're buying. This is not really a sort of. Uh, particularly vanilla uh, mm. securities market. Um, so, and you know, these deals can take a year to put together. You know, you might take you mm. know, your lead time on a plane might be a couple of years or whatever it is, but um, mm. for these deals, it's not much shorter. So, but I guess the point is that, you know, when the deals are performed that well, then certainly people are looking, especially when the underlying conditions for the airline industry look so favorable. There's a bank in Japan that has been known as the CLO whale in the past, and its motto is dedicated to sustaining all life. So we're going to be hearing about whether it's going to be sustaining the CLO market in the months to come. Hello, Victoria. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Ralph. Nice to be back. Uh, now, InvestCorp brought a CLO to the market this week, which it uh, which it called Harvest in that sort of slightly irritating way that you uh, securitization people have of insisting upon giving everything an extra layer of nomenclature. I refuse to approach that. Uh, but perhaps what was most notable about it was uh, not the deal, but who who's thought to have brought it. Um, tell us a bit about that. I, I absolutely will, um, because you're right. Yeah, the, the deal itself looks to me very similar. Um, like the other deals that we're seeing right now. But yeah, what is special about it is that apparently the entire AAA tranche of notes um, around 240 million euros has been taken by an Asian investor in a pre-placement, which seems to 
have not happened like that in quite a number of months. And that's quite exciting for many people. Don't, don't be so coy, Victoria. <laughs> what do you mean by an Asian investor? We're talking about one in particular here, aren't we? Um, yes. So um, I've talked to a number of investors and people sort of looking at the deal and around the deal. Um, and it seems that there are certain elements in the documentation that combined with the pre-placement suggest that it might have been um, Norinchukin Bank, um, a Japanese um, a Japanese farmer's bank. So yeah, that's, that's, that's what people sort of um, speculate about, but it's pretty broadly accepted that it was an Asian one. Okay, why why are people so excited about um, a, a Japanese farmers bank um, buying a CLO? That seems a bit a bit of a niche interest. Because because it means that um, maybe the nightmare of widening spreads may be over. <laughs> so the Japanese investors they used to be a pretty big deal, um, if not to say the biggest deal um, in the CLO market between around 2016, 17, and twenty nineteen. And what they would do it, they would come into your deal, say, <clears throat> I'm going to take your entire most senior tranche and I'm going to give you a good price. So they're less opportunistic. Um, but in exchange, I'm going to make you put in some sort of documentation um, and certain stipulations that that I want. Um, so yeah, people are excited because it means more demand, um, tight spreads in the senior notes. And then some hope for that it will be this chain reaction of more demand for CLOs, more demand for primary loans, more demand for M&A, and we're all saved. And Norin Chukin is particularly important, isn't it, though, compared with the yes, other they investors? Yes, um, they were the biggest global um, CLO investor in those sort of late 2010s. Um, so at the height of their investments in 2019, they had about 56 billion US dollars in CLOs. So, yeah, they would. Um, and at the time, apparently, it did make a significant difference for the pricing, whether they were the ones taking it or whether it was just syndicated. So, yeah, that is that mm -hmm. is like it would never make such a big difference if one investor came to the market or not. Um, but here, that is a pretty mm. big event if it means that they are actually making a sustainable return. What was it that kept them out of the market in the intervening years? So. When they started getting into it, part of the attraction was that interest rates in Japan were really low and Norinchukin was under um, some pressure to sort of give returns um, to to the, the providers of, of money for it. And um, CLOs were sort of a way to to make make this money and make those kinds of yields um, necessary. So they started buying a lot of them. And in 2019, the regulator started in Japan, the Japanese regulator started to get to ask them more questions and then ultimately introduced certain rules that meant that if you're a Japanese bank and you want to buy some sort of securitization product, you need to make sure that um, it meets certain conditions or you would have to apply a three times higher regulatory capital risk weighting. And um, after that, Norinchukin sort of stopped buying more CLOs for a while. They didn't like dump the ones they had, but yeah, they they sort of left the market as this massive buyer that they had been. And what were they, What are the conditions, roughly speaking? Um, yeah, so I did I did read some very complex law documents, um, and from what I understand, and probably presenting it in a way more simplified way, um, there's two one of two things um, must be ensured. It's either that the originator 
of the securitization retains at least 5% of the total exposure of the assets. And that can be either across tranches or sort of vertical on the riskiest tranche. Um, and alternatively, there is different ways to achieve this, but the originator essentially needs to bear credit risk that is equivalent or higher to what Japanese rules dictate. Okay, so basically these are rules that uh, ensure the, the issuer, or, or to be more precise, the originator of the CLO has skin in the exactly. game, uh, as they put it, and, and sort of is taking at least some exactly. of the risk. So their interests are aligned with the investors, which seems fair enough. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I'd, I'd say so. That it certainly um, was seen as more bondholder friendly. So what's changed that uh, encouraged these investors or this one investor back into the market? It doesn't seem to be the regulation. Um, from all I from all I found out, that is still the same. Um, so I presume that it is an adjustment um, of the market and sort of um, Japanese investors talking to CLO managers and um, just making this work in the context of the of the regulation. So basically, you mean the CLO managers have decided to comply with the regulations? Yeah, yeah that, that is what it looks like. And do we think this is a one-off or uh, are these Japanese investors coming back on a more permanent basis? Well, that's what people seem to be hoping. Um, I have heard rumours that another um, Japanese investor, might be the same or different one, um, is in talks with CLO managers and sort of trying to sort of with the intention to participate in a deal in the second half of the year, which would be an encouraging sign that this is more than a one off. Um, by the way, it could be others. It's not just Nochu. We've been kind of focused on that name. Um, so we don't know for like with 100% certainty that it's them in InvestCorp's deal. Um, it just sort of looks very strongly like that from circumstantial evidence. Um, there are others like Japan Post Bank and Sumitomo Life Insurance that um, could also that were also investing in CLOs, not not to the same scale. It's not true, but there are others. Okay, and uh, surely you know if you get a big bunch of um, sizable buyers that wade back into a market as an issue, that's got to be got to be a great thing, right? I mean, is everybody as delighted <laughs> to see uh, see the Japanese investors coming back to this market? Um, well, there is some disagreement on that, I have to say, Ralph. Um, so some, some investors that I spoke to were quite thrilled. Um, but there was in particular one CLO manager um, who called them an acquired taste um, and had some very strong opinions um, about it. I think I didn't put all the quotes into the into the piece, but he did talk about how they, yes, they do come in and they take that sizable chunk and they give you a better price, but also... Um, they do impose those stipulations, and that guy that guy said that some of them make sense and some of them don't, um, and are just annoying and cause more work. Um, so that seems like a somewhat subjective view, but yeah, there's there's some people um, who aren't as thrilled. I will caveat that that was not one of the top ten CLO managers, um, which would be the usual targets for Japanese investors. So that CLO manager isn't that likely to actually. Um, have have anything to do with them. Um, this is a problem he would like to have, not one that he does have. Exactly. I think the market, the market as a whole, could do with more work. Couldn't yeah, they? exactly, exactly. They're, they're just yeah. What are they going to do? Hang out and wait for loans to come back? Might as well just work through Japanese yeah. regulations. Yeah, I think that's. Um, so what what is the what is the prospect of 
I mean, if the Japanese investors did come back in size and the CLO managers were able and willing to accommodate them and their, their requirements, um, what could that do to the CLO and leverage finance markets? It could sort of um, restart that virtuous circle of CLO and M&A activity that especially leverage loan bankers like to speak of. So sort of um, demand for CLOs will drive um, demand for primary leverage loans and that will drive demand for M&A and that will then drive demand from CLOs, um, which hasn't really been working because this year um, there's a lack of primary loan issuance because there's hardly M&A, any, any, there's hardly any M&A <laughs> in, in the uncertain market environment of the past year. Um, so this has all sort of been a bit muted. Um, and if there was this increased demand and sort of AAA spreads would tighten, that would help getting the arbitrage to work better again. For the deepest analysis of MDB hybrid capital, there really is no better place to read about it than global capital. And to follow all of the developments in European and US securitization, not only is there globalcapital.com, but also our dedicated securitization podcast called Another Fine Mez. Uh, you'll be able to find that on the homepage and also on any podcast streaming platform of your choice. Uh, so in the meantime, thank you, John and Victoria, for joining me to record this edition of the podcast. And we'll be back with more from the capital markets next week. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.